John the Baptist was a man who pointed men to Jesus Christ. And if you've met Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, with that you ought to be able to identify with this great man. And I really wonder, I wonder this morning, this one whom no one born of a woman was greater. I wonder if we really have that as the overarching aim in our life. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today's sermon is entitled, John the Baptist. We are continuing our study in the Gospel of John, a book that is instrumental in bringing men, women, boys and girls into the knowledge of who Jesus Christ is and what his message of hope and salvation bring. But before Jesus made himself known as the Messiah, John the Baptist was proclaiming the coming of the Lord as it was prophesied. Jesus awaited this proclamation from his cousin and insisted on being baptized by him before pursuing his ordained ministry. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues in John chapter 1 verse 19. Take your Bibles, please, this morning and turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. If you're joining us for the very first time, we just began a brand new series in the gospel according to John. And it's our prayer that we might, if God gives us the strength and unless the rapture happens, that we'll work all the way through the gospel of John. Now, in the last few weeks, we've looked at the prologue found in the first 18 verses But this morning, we want to give our focus to the ministry of John the Baptist. And so I've entitled this message, John the Baptist. He's one of the most important individuals in all of the New Testament. He's mentioned at least 89 times. And John had the special privilege of introducing the nation of Israel to their Messiah. He also had the incredible challenge of calling people to repent, to prepare their hearts for the coming one, and to evidence that repentance through baptism. And if you remember the words of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, when he described John, he described him with great words of honor. He said, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Now, what is it that made John the Baptist so very, very great? As a prophet, he never did a single miracle. And as a preacher... He had none of the symbols that we typically associate with success. No books, no evangelistic crusades as we define them today, certainly no congenial sermons. In fact, his message was very simple and straightforward and often redundant. And from a worldly point of view, he was scruffy, he was unattractive and, well, rather unusual. And yet the Lord Jesus said, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Well, here in our passage this morning, we find some of the characteristics that made this man so very, very great. So having finished his introduction, we want to dig into a rather lengthy section, verses 19 to 34, but it really forms a cohesive unit, and it tells us so much of John's greatness. Follow along as I begin reading John chapter 1, beginning now in verse 19. And this is the witness of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, and he confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he said, he answered, no. 
And they said then to him, who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees and they asked him and said to him, why then are you baptizing if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am, unwor- I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. And I did not recognize him, but in order that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. And John bore witness, saying, I beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. And I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now, can you imagine, had there been some local newspaper coverage in this day, what they might have written about these events? Maybe the headlines would have read, Extraordinary Scenes Down There at the River Jordan. Or maybe they would have written, Crowds Making Their Journey Down the Jericho Road. Had there possibly been a a fashion columnist there, they might have commented on John's unusual dress of a camel hair skin. Or perhaps maybe if there was a food consultant, they would have noted this man's diet of honey and locusts. Certainly, they would have written about some of the people whom he baptized. They would have interviewed tax collectors whom Luke repeatedly tells us repented of their sin and stopped stealing from the people. Or maybe they would have interviewed some of the soldiers who are known for robbing people. Or perhaps they would have commented on the religious turmoil, on the Pharisees who absolutely despised and were angered by what this man, the Baptist, was doing. And of course, they would have had to have written about the mass baptisms that were going on. But I suspect, had the Jerusalem Times been there, judging by the press of today, they probably would have missed the entire point. Because the real point that is recorded here by the Apostle John was not the conglomerations of events that took place, though indeed they did. But the real point that he focuses and highlights in this portion of Scripture is that John the Baptist was a man who pointed men to Jesus Christ. And if you've met Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, with that you ought to be able to identify with this great man. And I really wonder... I wonder this morning, this one whom no one born of a woman was greater. I wonder if we really have that as the overarching aim in our life, like John, to point men to Christ. Now, the centrality of Christ and his exaltation over all is a major theme that runs all the way through the gospel of John. And there are some timeless lessons and principles for you and I to apply in this passage of Scripture. Understand, this is not just some isolated historical event that took place two millennia ago. This is not simply what God has said. This is what God is saying today. So let's step through this passage of Scripture and see if we can mine some of the timeless principles as it relates to us. There in the note-taking outline on the back of your bulletin, 
You can see we've divided this portion of Scripture into two sections. Uh, if you have read the Gospel of John, you'll note that he gives us a record of four days from the life of John, and we find some of those days recorded here in the first chapter. The first day recorded from his life happens in verses 19 to 28. And then the second day, introduced with the words the next day in verses 29 to 34, are recorded in what follows. Day one revolves around some questions that were asked. Day two revolves around some answers that were given. So let's first consider the questions that are asked. John begins his portion of Scripture on the Baptist's life by explaining to us about some Jews who were very concerned about John the Baptist's identity and his ideology. And so let's consider first these questions about John's identity. Now, don't forget from our introductory session on the Gospel of John. This Gospel, in its purpose, is specifically recorded for us at the end of the Gospel. In John chapter 20, verse 21, John says, I wrote all these things to you that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing you might have life in His name. That's the theme of the Gospel. And so how appropriate it is that he would begin this Gospel with the ministry of John the Baptist. Because that's the theme of John's ministry, that men might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing they might find life in His name. Now notice this delegation that is sent. They're described here in verse 19. And this is the witness of John when the Jews who sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now, on the first day, a committee of sorts from the Jewish religious leaders came and they interrogated John the Baptist. They wanted to know, who are you? And that was a logical question. And of course, they had every right to investigate the apostle because part of their responsibility before God were custodians and guardians of the faith. Now, we're told here the Jews sent these priests and Levites. John will use this phrase, the Jews, not just to refer to Hebrew people in general, but to a certain section of Hebrew people, namely the religious leaders. In fact, they're identified for us here in verse 24. These Jews, we're told, had been set, sent from the Pharisees. And so uh, the Pharisees were the Jews, in essence, that sent this delegation. Now, if you know anything of the Pharisees, you know that they were more than any other single group, those who opposed the Lord Jesus in his public ministry. And these Pharisees were told sent priests and Levites. Why priests and Levites? Well, because they represented the ecclesiastical side of the nation. Not to mention that John himself had a father who was from the tribe of Levi. And so John potentially could have been a priest. And so the burning question was, who are you? John, what he was preaching, struck a chord. He pushed some hot buttons. And so this was something that the Sanhedrin, the religious Supreme Court of Israel, could not ignore because he was stirring up the nation of Israel. He had given the people a renewed expectation that the Messiah was coming. He had been promised specifically to come through the Jew for nearly two millennia all the way back to Abraham. And now John is preaching of his coming. So they wanted to know who you are. Now, after this delegation comes, John gives them some answers. And he gives some answers first on the negative side with three denials, one after the other. He doesn't accept any honors that are not his own. Notice his words in verse 20. And he confessed and did not deny. And he confessed, I am not the Christ. 
Now remember, these questions are proposed by men who knew the Old Testament scriptures. And though John technically did not ask, at least it's not recorded for us, are you the Christ? It was a burning question in their heart. And so he immediately came out and he said, I'm not the Christ. Now Messiah fever was widespread in this day. Josephus records that many were coming into Israel saying, I am the Messiah. And of course, the people in one sense were expecting Messiah. If you've read Daniel chapter 9, it was within this time frame in human history that God predicted the first coming of the Messiah. And so here's John. He's a Jew. And of course, salvation, Jesus said, is from the Jew. God promised from the lineage of Abraham that all of the nations of the world would be blessed. So they thought, well, he's a Jew. Maybe he's the Messiah. Well, his father was a Levite, so that would seem to disqualify him. But on the other hand, if you remember his mother, Elizabeth, the relative of Mary, the mother of the Lord, was from the tribe of Judah, from the house of David. So that potentially qualified him. And so they're really wanting to know, is he the Messiah? Not to mention that Isaiah gave a very descriptive prophecy of what the Messiah would be like. Listen to what the prophet said in Isaiah 53. He, Messiah, has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. So here's this fellow living out in the wilderness. He eats locusts. He has camel hair garments. He wears his big belt. And they're thinking, maybe that's him. Not to mention that Isaiah also predicted that when the Messiah came, he would preach with great power, that the Spirit of the Lord would be upon him. And so they're thinking, is he Messiah? And he immediately says, I am not the Christ. And so they fired a second question at him. Notice verse 21. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? Now, this second question goes back to a prophecy that the last writing prophet of the Old Testament made, namely Malachi. You might want to put there in the margin Malachi 4 in verse 5. Malachi 4, 5. Let me read it to you. Malachi wrote, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, if you remember Elijah, centuries before, he had been swept up into heaven in a whirlwind. God brought a chariot of fire, and he carried Elijah up into heaven. Elijah didn't experience physical death like many of the Old Testament saints. He escaped that. And in many ways, he's really a picture of the rapture to come. And so hundreds of years after Elijah was carried into heaven, Malachi the prophet said, Elijah's coming again before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so the Jews expected that. And so they're asking a natural question. Are you Elijah? Now understand that they really confuse this prophecy because Elijah's coming is linked not to the first advent of Christ, but to the great and terrible day of the Lord. What the Old Testament calls the time of Jacob's trouble, what the New Testament calls the great tribulation period, to the second coming. You see, both comings of Christ are wed together in the New Testament, very often, or in the Old Testament, very often in the same verse. You find the Lord Jesus, if you remember, going into the synagogue, and he opens to the prophecy of Messiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he has anointed me to preach. And right in the middle of a verse, quoting Isaiah, he stops. And he doesn't go on to describe the rest of that prophecy because it won't be fulfilled until the second coming. 
Isaiah chapter 9 says, A child will be born unto us. And this child's name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. And then he goes on and he says, The governments will rest upon his shoulders. Both dimensions of Messiah's ministry wed together. And very often they're separate. And so the Bible speaks of Messiah who would come not simply as a suffering servant, but one who would also come with a rod of iron, who would subject the nations where all of the nations would respond to his leadership. Now, if you were under the heel of Rome and you were a Jew and oppressed by the Roman Empire, which picture of Messiah would you gravitate to? Well, the latter. But what they didn't understand is that Elijah's coming is not linked to the first advent, but to the second advent. And so Peter tells us that the Old Testament prophets wrote of the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Hold your finger here for just a second, would you, and John 1, and turn to Matthew chapter 17. I, I, I want you to see something that's interesting. Matthew chapter 17, right after the transfiguration, when the Lord is up there on that mountain and Elijah appears, as does Moses, very interesting event. It was in fulfillment to a prophecy that the Lord gave that there were some who would not taste death before they saw a picture of the coming kingdom, and indeed they did. But of course, the disciples knew this was not a fulfillment of Elijah's prophecy because Elijah was going to come to the whole nation. And this was a very private experience. Jesus and the inner circle of three men up there. But it forced a question in their minds. The disciples, verse 10, asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? The disciples had been taught by the scribes that before Messiah comes, Elijah is going to come up a second time. Uh, I preached a sermon once, if you were here a few years ago through Malachi, called The Second Coming of Elijah. And that's why on another occasion when Jesus asked the question of his disciples, who do men say that I am? Some said, well, you're John the Baptist. Others say, you're Elijah the prophet. But who do you say that I am? Thou art the Christ, Peter said, the son of the living God. But some thought, he was Mal that he was Elijah. Why? Because of Malachi's prophecy. But what they didn't understand is that Malachi's prophecy was related to the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now look at verse 11. Our Lord affirms Malachi's prophecy as being true, still yet to be fulfilled. And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. Jesus affirmed that he is going to come again. And as you read the Revelation, you discover that Elijah comes during the time of the Great Tribulation period and has an incredible ministry in those days. So he taught Elijah will come again. But in a sense, he said, Elijah already came. Look at verse 12. But I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. They're talking about, he's talking here about John the Baptist, who had already been dead for some time. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. So Jesus categorically said, Elijah already came. It's not double talk. On the one hand, he is coming. On the other hand, he already came. Why? Because John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. He did the work of Elijah in the sense that like Elijah, he called the people to repentance. And like Elijah, he saw only a remnant that responded. And like Elijah who preached to Ahab, John the Baptist preached to King Herod. Both sought to kill both men, and of course, one was successful. Both preached to the multitudes, 
but only a few responded. And so on the one hand, he's saying, yes, he has come. But on the other hand, he is coming again before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, back here in John chapter 1, that's what is behind the question that these priests and Levites are asking. What then? Are you Elijah? They had Malachi's prophecy in mind. And of course, John says, I am not. So when John categorically denies that he was not Elijah, they go back to an even earlier prophecy made back by Moses. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Now, what were they referring to? Well, Deuteronomy 18, 15. You might want to write that out in the margin. Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15. In that passage of Scripture, Moses made a prediction. He said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. Now, some misunderstood this prophecy as they misunderstood the prophecy that Malachi made. In their minds, they had somehow separated the prophet from the Messiah. And so they ask, are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? And they've got this third one, are you the prophet? Now, not all did that. Before we're done with this chapter, we'll see Philip, who a lot of people laugh and make fun at today. He was really a sharp guy, intellectually astute. And he recognized when he saw the Lord Jesus, he goes to Nathaniel and says, we found the Messiah, the one whom Moses and the prophets wrote about. And so these people are asking, are you the prophet that Moses wrote of? Of course, Christ was that prophet because he came to fulfill three offices, the office of prophet, priest, and king. And John just gives a blunt answer and he says, no. Now, it's interesting. Each question brings a shorter answer. First, he says, I am not the Christ. Then he says, I am not to their second question. Now he just says, no. And so after the delegation heard these denials, they put a demand on him. Very specifically, look at verse 22. They said to him, who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? We need to give a specific answer to those who sent us. And all we've got up to this point is a bunch of denials. We know who you say you're not, but who are you? And his answer comes directly from Scripture. He said, verse 23, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now, there are two Old Testament prophets that predicted the coming ministry of John. And John, at this point, quotes one of them, Isaiah. He's quoting from Isaiah 40. Let me read to you a portion of it. It's a passage of Scripture that deals with the coming Messiah. He said, a voice is calling... Clear the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So Isaiah spoke of this one who would be a forerunner before the glory of the Lord would be revealed, namely the Lord Jesus. It was a prophecy concerning the forerunner. And of course, that's the way the New Testament understands it as well. If you remember Matthew 3, now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And so John identifies himself, not as the prophet that Moses spoke of, not of the coming Elijah that Malachi predicted, not the Messiah. He says, I am a voice. 
um, only a voice. Now, what's a voice? A voice is nothing more than a vehicle, an instrument. Jim Elliott, that great missionary who lost his life in 1956, prayed on one occasion, is recorded in his diary, Lord God forbid that these who hear me would confuse my word as though they are thine or take thy words as though they were mine. He recognized he was just a voice, that he was to take the word of God and appoint men to Christ. That's what John was saying. The Christian today is just a voice. We are to appoint people to the Lord Jesus. I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. So here in verse 23, he's pointing out to these priests and Levites Isaiah's prophecy, and he's affirming that he is the fulfillment of that prophecy. This locust-eating prophet named John is the last person in the world from a human perspective you would expect to be the Lord's forerunner. But he was God's man for the job. And as you ponder this man's life, you can see why. First, John was an incredibly humble person. Remember, he has already been describing Christ. He's been going around saying this. We read it back in John 15, uh, John 1.15. John bore witness of him and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. John knew he wasn't the true light. He knew that Christ was. John knew he was a lamp, but Christ was the light. He knew he was a wick, but Christ was the flame. John was not a man who was caught up with a sense of his own importance. Here is a man who had baptized literally thousands of people. He had amassed a, a fairly significant following, and he could have easily have called attention to himself. He could have said basically what Christ said about him. Yeah, if, if you're willing to accept that I am Elijah. He might have gone beyond that and said, well, I am the prophet Moses spoke of. Or I am the Messiah, but he never did that. He never played even on their own ignorance. He said, I'm just a voice. He had all the opportunity in the world to be famous. Yet every time you find John speaking, he's always pointing men to the Lord Jesus Christ. And John makes that a major theme all the way through this gospel. Now, very often you meet people who want to be recognized, who want to be noticed, who want to have the attention pointed at them. Now, understand there's nothing wrong at all with you're carrying out the call that God has put on your life with your using the gifts that God has given you. But please understand, true humility, it doesn't ignore that call. It doesn't ignore that gifts, those gifts that God has given you. But true humility has it in perspective. Much like what Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. Humility, of course, does not mean that you put yourself down or grovel. No, humility means that you put the Lord Jesus Christ up. It doesn't mean that you continually rag on yourself, but it means that you lift up the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's John, that's what he's doing. He knew he wasn't the Messiah. He knew he was just a man. He knew he was John, not Jesus. He knew he was a voice, but not the Word made flesh. And so you see John exercising true humility and pointing men to Christ. Ironically... People who strain at humility, people who try to engineer their own decrease, typically just call attention to themselves. On the other hand, those who exalt the Lord Jesus Christ call attention away from themselves. 
And that's what God's called us to do. That's why the writer of the Hebrews says, fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. You see, when you're occupied with the Lord Jesus Christ, you won't be occupied with yourself. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John 003. Remember that you can support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling or you can give online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous donation plays an important role in providing biblical teaching and spreading the gospel. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.